a treatise on the mortification of sin by Dr. John Owen, 1616-1683. This is chapter 11. This is my third direction. Load thy conscience with the guilt of it. Not only consider that it hath a guilt, but load thy conscience with the guilt of its actual eruptions and disturbances. For the right improvement of this rule, I shall give some particular directions. Number one, take God's method in it, and begin with generals, and so descend to particulars. One, charge thy conscience with that guilt which appears in it from the rectitude and holiness of the law. Bring the holy law of God into thy conscience. Lay thy corruption to it. Pray that thou mayest be affected with it. Consider the holiness, spirituality, fiery severity, inwardness, absoluteness of the law, and see how thou canst stand before it. Be much, I say, in affecting thy conscience with the terror of the Lord in the law, and how righteous it is that every one of thy transgressions should receive a recompense of reward. Perhaps thy conscience will invent shifts and evasions to keep off the power of this consideration, is that the condemning power of the law doth not belong to thee. Thou art set free from it, and the like. And so, though thou be not conformable to it, yet thou needest not to be so much troubled at it. But tell thy conscience that it cannot manage any evidence to the purpose that thou art free from the condemning power of sin whilst thy unmortified lust lies in thy heart, so that perhaps the law may make its good plea against thee for a full dominion, and then thou art a lost creature. Wherefore it is best to ponder to the utmost what it has to say. Assuredly, he that pleads in the most secret reserve of his heart, that he is freed from the condemning power of the law, thereby secretly to countenance himself in giving the least allowance unto any sin or lust, is not able on gospel grounds to manage any evidence unto any tolerable spiritual security that indeed he is in a due manner freed from what he so pretends himself to be delivered. Two, whatever be the issue... Yet the law hath commissioned from God to seize upon transgressors wherever it find them, and so bring them before his throne, where they are to plead for themselves. This is thy present case. The law has found thee out. Before God it will bring thee. If thou canst plead a pardon, well and good. If not, the law will do its work. Number three. However, this is the proper work of the law to discover sin and the guilt of it, to wake and humble the soul for it, to be a glass to represent sin in its colors. And if thou deniest to deal with it on this account, it is not through faith, but through the hardness of thy heart and the deceitfulness of sin. This is a door that too many professors have gone out at unto open apostasy, such a deliverance from the law they have pretended, as that they would consult its guidance and direction no more. They would measure their sin by it no more. By little in little this principle hath insensibly, from the notion of it, proceeded to influence their practical understandings, and have taken possession there, 
hath turned the will and affections loose to all manner of abominations. But such ways I say then, as these, persuade thy conscience to hearken diligently to what the law speaks in the name of the Lord unto thee about thy lust and corruption. Oh, if thy ears be open, it will speak with a voice that shall make thee tremble, that shall cast thee to the ground and fill thee with astonishment. If ever thou wilt mortify thy corruptions, thou must tie up thy conscience to the law, shut it from all shifts and exceptions, until it owns its guilt with a clear and thorough apprehension, so that thence, as David speaks, thy iniquity may ever be before thee. Number two, bring thy lust to the gospel, not for relief, but for further conviction of its guilt. Look on him whom thou hast pierced, and be in bitterness. Say to the soul, What have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to the Son for his blood, to the Holy Ghost for his grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the Blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in? And can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? How shall I hold up my head with any boldness before Him? Do I account communion with Him of so little value? For this vile lust's sake I have scarce left any room in my heart. For him, how shall I escape if I neglect so great a salvation? In the meantime, what shall I say to the Lord? Love, mercy, grace, goodness, peace, joy, consolation. I have despised them all and esteemed them as a thing of naught, that I might harbor a lust in my heart. Have I obtained a view of God's fatherly countenance, that I might behold his face and provoke him to his face? Was my soul washed that room might be made for new defilements? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the end of the death of Christ? Shall I daily grieve that spirit whereby I am sealed to the day of redemption? Entertain thy conscience daily with this treaty. See if it can stand before this aggravation of its guilt. If this make it not sink in some measure and melt, I fear thy condition is dangerous. Number two, descend to particulars. As under the general head of the gospel, all the benefits of it are to be considered as redemption, justification, and the like. So in particular, consider the management of the love of them towards thine own soul for the aggravation of the guilt of thy corruption, as one, consider the infinite patience and forbearance of God towards thee in particular. Consider what advantages he might have taken against thee to have made thee a shame and a reproach in this world, and an object of wrath forever. How thou hast dealt treacherously and falsely with him from time to time, flattered him with thy lips, but broken all promises and engagements, that by the means of that sin thou art now in pursuit of. And yet he has spared thee from time to time, 
although thou seemest boldly to have put it to the trial how long he could hold out. And wilt thou yet sin against him? Wilt thou yet weary him and make him to serve thy corruptions? Hast thou not often been ready to conclude thyself that it was utterly impossible that he should bear any longer with thee, that he would cast thee off and be gracious no more, that all his forbearance was exhausted, and hail and wrath was even ready prepared for thee, and yet, above all thy expectation, he hath returned with visitations of love, and wilt thou yet abide in the provocation of the eyes of his glory? 2. How often hast thou been at the door of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? and by the infinite, rich grace of God, has been recovered to communion with Him again. Hast thou not found grace decaying, delight in duties, ordinances, prayer and meditation, vanishing, inclinations to loose, careless walking, thriving, they who before were entangled almost beyond recovery? Hast thou not found thyself engaged in such ways, societies, companies, and that with delight is God abhors? And wilt thou venture any more to the brink of hardness? 3. All God's gracious dealings with thee in providential dispensations, deliverances, afflictions, mercies, enjoyments, all ought here to take place. By these, I say, in the like means, Load thy conscience, and leave it not until it be thoroughly affected with the guilt of thy indwelling corruption, until it is sensible of its wound, and lie in the dust before the Lord. Unless this be done to the purpose, all other endeavors are to no purpose. Whilst the conscience hath any means to alleviate the guilt of sin, the soul will never vigorously attempt its mortification. Fourthly, being thus affected with thy sin, in the next place get a constant longing, breathing after deliverance from the power of it. Suffer not thy heart one moment to be contented with thy present frame and condition. Longing desires after anything in things natural and civil are of no value or consideration any farther, but as they incite and stir up the person in whom they are to a diligent use of means for the bringing about the thing aimed at. In spiritual things it is otherwise. Longing, breathing, and panting after deliverance is a grace in itself that hath a mighty power to conform the soul into the likeness of the thing longed after. Hence the apostle, describing the repentance and godly sorrow of the Corinthians, reckons this as one imminent grace that was then set on work, vehement desire. And in this case of indwelling sin and the power of it, what frame doth he express himself to be in? Romans 7:24. His heart breaks out with longings into a most passionate expression of desire, of deliverance. Now if this be the frame of saints upon the general considerations of indwelling sin, how is it to be heightened and increased when thereunto is added the perplexing rage and power of any particular lust and corruption? Assure thyself, unless thou longest for deliverance, thou shalt not have it. This will make the heart watchful for all opportunities of advantage against its enemy, and ready to close with any assistances that are afforded for its destruction. 
Strong desires are the very life of that praying always, which is enjoined us in all conditions, and in none is more necessary than in this. They set faith and hope on work, and are the souls moving after the Lord. Get thy heart then into a panting and breathing frame. Long sigh, cry out. You know the example of David. I shall not need to insist on it. The fifth direction is, Consider whether the distemper with which thou art perplexed be not rooted in thy nature and cherished, fomented and heightened from thy constitution. A proneness to some sins may doubtless lie in the natural temper and disposition of men. In this case, consider one. This is not in the least an extenuation of the guilt of thy sin. Some with an open profaneness will ascribe gross enormities to their temper and disposition. And whether others may not relieve themselves from the pressing guilt of their distempers by the same consideration, I know not. It is from the fall, from the original deprivation of our natures, that the foams and nourishment of any sin abides in our natural temper. David reckons his being shapen in iniquity and conception in sin as an aggravation of his following sin, not a lessening or extenuation of it. That thou art peculiarly inclined into any sinful distemper is but a peculiar breaking out of original lust in thy nature, which should peculiarly abase and humble thee. Number two, that thou hast to fix upon this account, in reference to thy walking with God, is that so great an advantage is given to sin as also to Satan by this thy temper and disposition, that without extraordinary watchfulness, care, and diligence, they will assuredly prevail against thy soul. Thousands have been on this account hurried headlong to hell, who otherwise at least might have gone at a more gentle, less provoking, less mischievous rate. Number three, for the mortification of any distemper so rooted in the nature of a man, and to all other ways and means already named, or farther to be insisted on, there is one expedient peculiarly suited. This is that of the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 9.27. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. The bringing of the very body into subjection is an ordinance of God tending to the mortification of sin. This gives check unto the natural root of the distemper and withers it by taking away its fatness of soil. Perhaps because of Papas, men ignorant of the righteousness of Christ, the work of his spirit and whole business in hand have laid the whole weight and stress of mortification in voluntary services and penances, leading to the subjection of the body, knowing indeed the true nature neither of sin nor mortification, it may, on the other side, be a temptation to some to neglect some means of humiliation, which by God himself are owned and appointed. The bringing of the body into subjection in the case insisted on, by cutting short the natural appetite, by fasting, watching, and the like, is doubtless acceptable to God, so it be done with the ensuing limitations. 1. That the outward weakening and impairing of the body be not looked upon as a thing good in itself, or that any mortification doth consist therein, which were again to bring us under carnal ordinances. 
but only as a means for the end proposed, the weakening of any distemper in its natural root and seat. A man may have leanness of body and soul together. Number two, that the means whereby this is done, namely by fasting and watching and the like, be not looked on as things that in themselves and by virtue of their own power can produce true mortification of any sin. For if they would, sin might be mortified without any help of the Spirit in any unregenerate person in the world. They are to be looked on only as ways whereby the Spirit may and sometimes doth put forth strength for the accomplishment of his own work, especially in the case mentioned. Want of a right understanding and due improvement of these and the like considerations hath raised a mortification among the papists that may be better applied to horses and other beasts of the field and to believers. This is the sum of what has been spoken. When the distemper complained of seems to be rooted in the natural temper and constitution, in applying our souls to a participation of the blood and spirit of Christ, and endeavors to be used to give check in the way of God to the natural root of that distemper. The sixth direction is, Consider what occasions, what advantages thy distemper hath taken to exert and put forth itself, and watch against them all. This is one part of that duty which our blessed Savior recommends to his disciples under the name of watching. Mark 13:37. I say unto you all, watch. Which in Luke 21:34 is, Take heed lest your hearts be overcharged. Watch against all eruptions of thy corruptions. I mean that duty which David professed himself to be exercised unto. I have, says he, kept myself from mine iniquity. He watched all the ways and workings of his iniquity to prevent them, to rise up against them. This is that which we are called unto under the name of considering our ways. Consider what ways, what companies, what opportunities, what studies, what businesses, what conditions have at any time given or do usually give advantages to thy distempers, and set thyself heedfully against them all. Men will do this with respect unto their bodily infirmities and distempers. The seasons, the diet, the air that have proved offensive shall be avoided. Are the things of the soul of less importance? Know that he that dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. He that will venture upon temptations unto wickedness will venture upon wickedness. Aziel thought he should not be so wicked as the prophet told him he would be. To convince him the prophet tells him no more but thou shalt be king of Syria. If he will venture on temptations unto cruelty, he will be cruel. Tell a man he shall commit such and such a sins, he will startle at it. If you convince him that he will venture on such occasions and temptations of them, he will have little ground left for his confidence. Particular directions belonging to this head are many, not now to be insisted on. But because this head is of no less importance than the whole doctrine here handled, I have at large in another treatise about entering into temptations treated of it. The seventh direction is, Rise mightily against the first actings of thy distemper, its first conceptions. Suffer it not to get the least ground. Do not say, Thus far it shall go, and no further. If I have allowance for one step, it will take another. It is impossible to fix bounds to sin. It is like water in a channel. If it once break out, it will have its course. Its not acting is easier to be compassed than its bounding. Therefore doth James give that gradation and process of lust, chapter 1, 14 and 15, that we may stop at the entrance. 
Doth thou find thy corruption to begin to entangle thy thoughts? Rise up with all thy strength against it, with no less indignation than if it had fully accomplished what it aims at. Consider what an unclean thought would have. It would have thee roll thyself in folly and filth. Ask envy what it would have. Murder and destruction is at the end of it. Set thyself against it with no less vigor than if it had utterly debased thee to wickedness. Without this course thou wilt not prevail. It sin gets ground in the affections to delight in. It gets also upon the understanding to slight it. Chapter 12 the eighth direction, thoughtfulness of the excellency of the majesty of God, our unacquaintedness with him proposed and considered. Eighthly, use and exercise thyself to such meditations as may serve to fill thee at all times with self-abasements and thoughts of thine own vileness as number one. Be much in thoughtfulness for the excellency of the majesty of God in thine infinite and inconceivable distance from him. Many thoughts of it cannot but fill thee with a sense of thine own vileness which strikes deep at the root of any indwelling sin. When Job comes to a clear discovery of the greatness and the excellency of God, he is filled with self-abhorrence and is pressed to humiliation. And in what state doth the prophet Habakkuk affirm himself to be cast upon the apprehension of the majesty of God? Chapter 3, 16. With God, says Job, is a terrible majesty. Hence were the thoughts of them of old, that when they had seen God, they should die. The scripture abounds in this self-abasing consideration, comparing the men of the earth to grasshoppers, to vanity, the dust of the balance in respect of God. Be much in thoughts of this nature to abase the pride of thy heart and to keep thy soul humble within thee. There is nothing will render thee a greater indisposition to be imposed on by the deceits of sin than such a frame of heart. Think greatly of the greatness of God. Think much of thine unacquainted with him, number two. Though thou knowest enough to keep thee low and humble, yet how little a portion is it that thou knowest of him. The contemplation hereof cast that wise man into the apprehension of himself, which he expresses, Proverbs 30, 2 and 4. Surely I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist? And who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? Labor with this also to take down the pride of thy heart. What dost thou know of God? How little a portion is it? How immense is he in his nature? Canst thou look without terror into the abyss of eternity? Thou canst not bear the rays of his glorious being. Because I look on this consideration of great use in our walking with God, so far as it may have a consistency with that filial boldness which is given us in Jesus Christ to draw nigh to the throne of grace, 
I shall further insist upon it to give an abiding impression of it to the souls of them who desire to walk humbly with God. Consider then, I say, to keep thy heart in continual awe of the majesty of God, that persons of the most high and imminent attainment, of the nearest and most familiar communion with God, do yet in this life know but a very little of Him and His glory. God reveals His name to Moses, the most glorious attributes that He hath manifested in the covenant of grace. Exodus 34, 5 and 6. Yet all are but the back parts of God. All that He knows by it is but little, low, compared to the perfections of His glory. Hence it is with peculiar reference to Moses that it is said, No man hath seen God at any time, John 1.18. Of him in comparison with Christ doth he speak, verse 17. And of him it is here said, No man, no, not Moses, the most eminent among them, hath seen God at any time. We speak much of God, can talk of Him, His ways, His works, His counsels all the day long. The truth is we know very little of Him. Our thoughts, our meditations, our expressions of Him are low. Many of them unworthy of His glory, none of them reaching His perfections. You will say that Moses was under the law when God wrapped up himself in darkness and his mind in tights and clouds and dark institutions under the glorious shining of the gospel which has brought life and immortality to light God being revealed from his own bosom we now know much more clearly and as he is we see his face now and not his back parts only as Moses did. I answer one I acknowledge a vast and almost inconceivable difference between the acquaintance we now have with God after His speaking to us by His own Son and that which the generality of the saints had under the law. For although their eyes were as good, sharp, and clear as ours, their faith and spiritual understanding not behind ours, the object is glorious unto them as unto us, yet our day is more clear than theirs was, the clouds are blown away and scattered, the shadows of the night are gone and fled away, the sun is risen, and the means of sight is made more imminent and clear than formerly yet. Number two, that peculiar sight which Moses had of God, Exodus 34, was a gospel sight, a sight of God as gracious, and so on. And yet it is called but his back parts. That is, but low and mean in comparison of his excellencies and perfections. Number three, the apostle, exalting to the utmost this glory of light above that of the law, manifesting that now the veil causing darkness is taken away, so that with open or uncovered face we behold the glory of the Lord tells us how. As in a glass, Second Corinthians 3.18. In a glass, how is that? Clearly? Perfectly? Alas, no. He tells you how that is, 1 Corinthians 13.12. We th see through a glass darkly, saith he. It is not a telescope that helps us to see things afar off, concerning which the apostle speaks. And yet what poor helps are they? How short do we come of the truths of things, notwithstanding their assistance? It is a looking-glass whereunto he alludes, where are only obscure species and images of things, and not the things themselves. 
and a sight therein that he compares our knowledge to. He tells us that we see through or by this glass as in a riddle, in darkness, and obscurity. And speaking of himself, who surely was much more clear-sighted than any now living, he tells us that he saw but in part. He saw but the back parts of heavenly things, verse 12, and compares all the knowledge he had attained of God to that he had of things when he was a child. We know that weak, feeble, uncertain notions and apprehensions children have of things of any abstruse consideration, how when they grow up with any improvements of parts and abilities, these conceptions vanish and they are ashamed of them. It is a commendation of a child to love, honor, believe, and obey his father. But for his science and notions, his father knows his childishness and folly. Notwithstanding all our confidence of high attainments, all our notions of God are but childish in respect of his infinite perfections. We lisp and babble and say we not what, for the most part, in our most accurate, as we think, conceptions and notions of God. We may love, honor, believe, and obey our Father, and therewith He accepts our childish thoughts, for they are but childish. We see but His back parts. We know but little of Him. Hence is that promise wherewith we are so often supported and comforted in our distress. We shall see Him as He is. We shall see Him face to face. Know as we are known. Comprehend that for which we are comprehended. 1 Corinthians 13.12 1 John 3.2 And positively, now we see Him not. All, concluding that here we see but His back parts. Not as He is, but in a dark, obscure representation. Not in the perfection of His glory. The Queen of Sheba had heard much of Solomon, and framed many great thoughts of his magnificence in her mind thereupon. But when she came and saw his glory, she was forced to confess that the one half of the truth had not been told her. We may suppose that we have here attained great knowledge, clear and high thoughts of God, but alas! When he shall bring us into his presence, we shall cry out, We never knew him as he is, the thousandth part of his glory and perfection and blessedness never entered into our hearts. The apostle tells us, 1 John 3, verse 2, that we know not that we ourselves shall be. What we shall find ourselves in the issue, much less will it enter into our hearts to conceive what God is and what we shall find him to be. Consider either him who is to be known, or the way whereby we know him, and this will further appear, one, we know so little of God, because it is God who is thus to be known. That is, he who hath described himself to us very much by this, that we cannot know him. What else doth he intend, where he calls himself invisible, incomprehensible, and the like? That is, he whom we do not know, cannot know as he is. And our further progress consists more in knowing what he is not than what he is. Thus is he described to be immortal, infinite. That is, he is not as we are mortal, finite, and limited. Hence is that glorious description of him, 1 Timothy 
6.16 Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. His light is such as no creature can approach unto. He is not seen, not because he cannot be seen, but because we cannot bear the sight of him. The light of God, in whom is no darkness, forbids all access to him by any creature, whatever. We who cannot behold the sun in its glory are too weak to bear the beams of infinite brightness. On this consideration, as was said, the wise man professes himself a very beast, and not to have the understanding of a man, Proverbs 30, verse 2, that is, he knew nothing in comparison of God, so that he seemed to have lost all his understanding when once he came to the consideration of him, his work, and his ways. In this consideration, let our souls descend to some particulars. Number one, for the being of God, we are so far from a knowledge of it so as to be able to instruct one another therein by words and expressions of it is that to frame any conceptions in our mind with such species and impressions of things as we receive the knowledge of all other things by is to make an idol to ourselves and so to worship a God of our own making and not the God that made us. We may as well and as lawfully hew him out of wood and stone as form him a being in our minds suited to our apprehensions. Yet most of the best of our thoughts of the being of God is that we can have no thoughts of it. Our knowledge of a being is but low when it mounts no higher, but only to know that we know it not. Number two, there be some things of God which he himself hath taught us to speak of, and to regulate our expressions of them. But when we have so done, we see not the things themselves, we know them not. To believe and admire is all that we attain to. We profess, as we are taught, that God is infinite, omnipotent, eternal, and we know what disputes and notions there are about omnipresence, immensity, infiniteness, and eternity. We have, I say, words and notions about these things, but as to the things themselves, what do we know? What do we comprehend of them? Can the man, mind of man do any more but swallow itself up in an infinite abyss which is as nothing, give itself up to what it cannot conceive, much less express? Is not our understanding brutish in the contemplation of such things, and is as if it were not? Yea, the perfection of our understanding is not to understand to rest there. They are but the back parts of in eternity and infiniteness that we have a glimpse of. What shall I say of the Trinity or the subsistence of distinct persons in the same individual essence? A mystery by many denied because by none understood. A mystery whose every letter is mysterious. Who can declare the generation of the Son, the procession of the Spirit, or the difference of the one from the other? But I shall not further instance in particulars that infinite and inconceivable distance that is between Him and us keeps us in the dark as to any sight of His face or clear apprehensions of His perfections. We know Him rather by what He does than by what He is. 
by his doing good to us and by his essential goodness. And how little a portion of him, as Job speaks, is hereby discovered. Number two, we know little of God because it is faith alone whereby we may know him. I shall not now discourse about the remaining impressions on the hearts of all men by nature that there is a God, nor what they may rationally be taught concerning that God from the works of his creation and providence, which they see and behold. It is confessedly that upon the woeful experience of all ages, so weak, low, dark, confused, that none ever on that account glorify God as they ought. But notwithstanding, all their knowledge of God were indeed without God in this world. The chief and upon the matter, almost only acquaintance we have with God in his dispensations of himself is by faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 Our knowledge of him and his rewarding the bottom of our obedience or coming to him is believing we walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians five seven. By faith and so by faith is not to have any express idea, image or species of that which we believe. Faith is all the argument we have of things not seen. Hebrews eleven one. I might here insist upon the nature of it. And from all its con commitments and concernments manifest that we know but the back parts of what we know by faith only. As to its rise, it is built purely upon the testimony of him whom we have not seen. As the apostle speaks, how can ye love him whom ye have not seen? That is, whom you know not, but by faith that he is. Faith receives all upon his testimony, whom it receives to be only on his own testimony. As to its nature, it is an assent upon testimony, not an evidence upon demonstration. And the object of it is, as was said before, above us. Hence our face, as was formerly observed, is calling a sea and darkly as in a class. All that we know this way, and all that we know of God we know this way, is but low and dark and obscure. But you will say, oh, this is true, but yet it is only sold to them that know not God, perhaps as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. With them who do so, it is otherwise. It is true, no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, he hath revealed him, John 1.18. And the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him. That is true, 1 John 5.20. The illumination of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, shineth upon believers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Yea, and God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, shines into their hearts to give them the knowledge of his glory in the face of his Son, verse so that though we were darkness yet we are now light in the Lord Ephesians 5 8 and the apostle says we all with open face behold the glory of the Lord 2 Corinthians 3 18 and we are now so far from being in such darkness or at such a distance from God that our communion and fellowship is with the Father and with his Son 1 John 1 3 the light of the gospel whereby now God is revealed is glorious not a star, but the sun in his beauty is risen upon us, and the veil is taken from our faces, so that though unbelievers, yea, and perhaps some weak believers may be in some darkness, yet those of any growth or considerable attainments have a clear sight and view of the face of God in Jesus Christ, to which I answer, the truth is we all of us know enough of him to love him more than we do. 
to delight in Him and serve Him, believe Him, obey Him, put our trust in Him above all that we have hitherto attained. Our darkness and weakness is no plea for our negligence and disobedience. Who is it that has walked up to the knowledge that He hath had of the perfections, excellencies, and will of God? God's end in giving us any knowledge of Himself here is that we may glorify Him as God. That is, love Him, serve Him, believe and obey Him, give Him all the honor and glory that is due from poor sinful creatures to a sin-pardoning God and Creator. We must all acknowledge that we were never thoroughly transformed into the image of that knowledge which we have had. And had we used our talents well, we might have been trusted with more. Now the difference between believers and unbelievers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of their knowledge as in their manner of knowing. Unbelievers, some of them, may know more and be able to say more of God, His perfections, and His will than many believers, but they know nothing as they ought, nothing in a right manner, nothing spiritually and savingly, nothing with a holy heavenly light. The excellency of a believer is not that he hath a large apprehension of things, but that what he doth apprehend, which perhaps may be very little, he sees it in the light of the Spirit of God, in a saving soul transforming light. And this is that which gives us communion with God, and not prying thoughts or curious raised notions. Chapter 9 when the heart is disquieted by sin, speak no peace to it until God speak it. Peace without detestation of sin unsound, so is peace measured out unto ourselves, how we may know when we measure our peace unto ourselves. Ninthly, in case God disquiet the heart about the guilt of its distempers, either in respect of its root and indwelling, or in respect of any eruptions of it, take heed thou speakest not peace to thyself before God speaks it, but hearken to what he says to thy soul. This is our next direction without the observation whereof the heart will be exceedingly exposed to the deceitfulness of sin. This is a business of great importance. It is a sad thing for a man to deceive his own soul herein. All the warnings God gives us in tenderness to our souls to try and examine ourselves do tend to the preventing of this great evil of speaking peace groundlessly to ourselves, which is upon the issue to bless ourselves in an opposition to God. It is not my business to insist upon the danger of it, but to help believers to prevent it and to let them know when they do so. To manage this direction aright, observe, number one, that as it is a great prerogative and sovereignty of God to give grace to whom he pleases, he hath mercy on whom he will, Romans 9.18, and among all the sons of men he calls whom he will, and sanctifies whom he will, so among those so called and justified, and whom he will save, he yet reserves this privilege to himself to speak peace to whom he pleaseth. And in what degree he pleaseth, even amongst them on whom he hath bestowed grace. He is the God of all consolation, and in a special manner in his dealing with believers, that is, of the good things that he keeps locked up in his family, and gives out of it to all his children at his pleasure. This the Lord insists on. Isaiah 57, 16-18. It is a case under consideration that is there insisted on. 
When God says he will heal their breaches and disconsolations, he assumes this privilege to himself and in a special manner. I created, verse 19, even in respect of these poor wounded creatures I created, and according to my sovereignty make it out as I please. Hence, as it is with the collation of grace in reference to them that are in the state of nature, God doth it in great curiosity, and his proceedings therein in taken and leaving, as to outward appearances, quite besides and contrary oft times to all probable expectations, so is it in his communications of peace and joy in reference unto them that are in the state of grace, he gives them out oft times quite besides our expectation, as to any appearing grounds of his dispensations. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.